Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. This summer, the focus was on Tokyo, the site of the 2020 Olympics, and the Paralympics. Six athletes with ties to Connecticut competed in the Paralympics, and four of them brought medals home. Today, where we live, we talked to para swimmer Matthew Torres, who won a bronze in the 400-meter freestyle. Coming up, we'll also hear from his coach at Fairfield University. The school has an integrated swim team and has had other Paralympic swimmers in its program. And later, we'll talk with another athlete with Connecticut ties, para rower Laura Goodkind. And we'll hear from Hearst, Connecticut sports reporter Maggie Vanoni. Were you watching the Tokyo Paralympics? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Matthew Torres joins us now on Zoom. Matthew, welcome and congratulations. Thank you so much for having me this morning. Uh, I'm really grateful to be here today to be able to talk with you. Now, you'll be starting your junior year at Fairfield, Matthew? Yes, that's correct. So what's it like uh, having a bronze medal? Um, it feels good knowing that after all these years of hard work and dedication, over 13 years of it, uh, it finally pays off. And, and uh, this amazing experience that all came together in, in Tokyo. And um, it feels good knowing that um, with, all, with all the work that you put in, you you finally you're able to get a reward from it, and so it's a good feeling. You mentioned 13 years uh, to get to this moment. So, as a child, how did you get into swimming, Matthew? Um, I originally got into swimming back in 2008, uh, watching Michael Phelps at the Summer Olympic Games in in Beijing, smashing world records, um, and it was probably within a week after those Olympics ended that I joined a local swim club and started training. Mm. So tell me uh, your parents' reaction when you said, I want to swim, I want to be like Michael Phelps. Uh, they were extremely supportive of me. Um, they they knew that um, whatever whatever I, I needed to do to get to that level, um, that that I would be dedicated to it. And so they didn't let anything hold me back. Um, they encouraged me, they supported me, and, and uh, whatever it is I needed for training, whether it was gear, more support, uh, help out competition, whatever it was, they were there for me. So after you told them you wanted to, to start swimming, what happened next? Where did you go to begin your training, Matthew? So I began my swimming career in the Valley YMCA in my hometown in Ansonia. Unfortunately, um, that Valley YMCA is no longer there. Um, it closed down this past summer, but um, yeah, that's where I originally started my career, and it was, it was a special 
other swim clubs and and now I'm I'm here with the university training hard with uh, Coach Tony. I love hearing that you started at the YMCA. Uh, so many children learned to swim at the Y, including my kids, uh, Matthew. What was the experience like? Were there other kids with disabilities on the swim team? How would you describe that experience? Um, so with the Valley YMCA Splinters, I was the only disabled swimmer there. And starting up, it, it was a little bit of a challenge. You know, I mean, I was seven years old at the time. And and I'm the only kid in there with one leg, so everyone else has a pretty sizable advantage over me. Um, and and again, and my my parents supported me, and they told me that no matter what is going on around me in practice, what matters is that my times were improving, and that was consistently getting faster. And I think that's what uh, kept me on the right track. Um, but overall, I. I made friends there uh, in the in the Valley program, and and, I, and I'm happy and, and grateful for the years I spent there. Give us an idea of, of what training is like to be at the level that you're at, Matthew. I mean, how many hours a day are you in the pool? Um, typically, uh, roughly three to four hours of training every day, whether it be just in the pool or or in the weight room, uh, some sort of combination in between that. And, and I'm swimming six days a week. Um, but now just trying to get back into the groove of things, having just returned from Tokyo. Um, but soon enough, I'll be swimming twice a day. You're hearing Matthew Torres here on Where We Live. He's a bronze medalist at the Paralympics and a junior at Fairfield University. Uh, it was your first Paralympics, Matthew? Yes, this was my first games, and hopefully there's many more to come. So can you tell us what it's like to be on the world stage? I mean, we're watching at home or on our computers, but when you're competing, and just just take us back to when you were uh, getting ready for the 400-meter freestyle. What was going through your mind? For, for me, especially for, for the final, um, I knew I was, in, I was in a big spot, you know. Um, I was the number one seed going in into finals and and I had this sort of confidence in me um that I was gonna have a good race and but at the same time I, I knew that I needed to remain calm, not not let any nerves get to me. Um because I had done the work and I'd done all the training and, and everything that needed to be done to get to that point. And so for me, it was just staying focused, um, staying calm because um, because I, I knew I could put together a good race, and ultimately that's what I did. You mentioned that uh, Michael Phelps inspired you, and I understand you met him before you got to the Paralympics, but did you see him while you were competing? Uh, what's he like? Um, so I did not see Phelps over in Tokyo, but um, I met him back in early 2019 at Southern Connecticut State University where he gave a speech. Um, our interaction was pretty brief, but I remember getting some words of encouragement from him um, and, and some support. Uh, 
he told me that he was looking forward to watching me race in Tokyo and, and hopefully he got to see some of those races. You know, it's interesting that uh, you were talking about when you were seven watching Michael Phelps and now uh, other children are watching you, uh, Matthew. How does that make you feel? What words of encouragement do you have for them? Um, I, I think it's it's pretty surprising just, just seeing like how things change over time. I mean, you like you start out being inspired by someone and then eventually you turn into the person that's inspiring others and, and I think that's really special and and it makes me happy to know that there's there's people that are being encouraged and motivated um, by what I do in the pool and and honestly for, for them um, that they made a big step uh, taking that first progress uh, into getting into sports whether it be swimming or something else and and that to get to a high level like this, it, it takes a lot of work and dedication and focus. Um, so just make sure that that always have like that goal in mind and 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 uh, never take your eyes off the prize because I think that's what that's definitely what's going to drive you the most to succeed mm-hmm. and stay in the game. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. My guest, Matthew Torres, a bronze medalist at the Paralympics in Tokyo. He's a junior at Fairfield University. I wanted to bring into the conversation Matthew's coach, Anthony Bruno. He's the head coach of men's and women's swimming and diving at Fairfield. Anthony, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Well, congratulations to you as well. You must be so proud of Matthew Torres. No, I mean, what what Matthew's done over the last... um, Two years has been pretty incredible, uh, you know, coming in as a first year, um, taking everything head on. And he really, he really elevated himself over the last um, two years to get to get to where he is right now. So um, it's pretty inspiring. Now, you've also had another Paralympian uh, that you coached, Colleen Young. So tell me about the Fairfield program and what it's like to have two Paralympians now in, in the school's program. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty exciting. Um, you know, my, actually my first exposure, um, to para para swimming was, um, I had a college teammate back at Springfield college by the name of Justin Zook, um, you know, who went on to win gold medals and he was kind of my first exposure, uh, to it. Um, and then, you know, when I had the opportunity, when I took over, over Fairfield, I I was very, uh, open to the idea and, and wanting to know more and wanting to do more and, um, you know, it started with Colleen and, and she went on to do a lot of, uh, exciting things. And, and I think that really opened the door for Matthew and, um, you know, it, it made it easy for him to step right in and, and keep building on the success he had. So when we think about the swim teams at Fairfield being integrated, so athletes with disabilities and athletes without, you know, how do you, any technical adaptations that are required during swim practice? How do you coach both? Yeah, I mean, we we really focus on um, what what people can do, not what they can't do, right? So, um, you know, Matt, <laughs> Matthew just got out of this water this morning. We had a had a big kick set, uh, obviously uh, with one leg. Um, so we were using we were using fins. So that's you know just a a basic a basic adaptation of of what we're doing. So to to integrate into the kick sets and things like that. So. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, we, we just talk about what, what we can do and, and then we make adjustments off of that. Uh, Matthew, I mentioned Colleen Young. What was that like to, to start at Fairfield knowing that uh, she was also part of the team? Was she also a role model for you? Yeah, obviously. Um, it, w- it was great having Colleen there for, for my first year here at Fairfield, um, knowing that we shared the U.S. Paralympic program um, and that, we're, that we were likely heading in, uh, to Tokyo together. Um, it was great having her around, and, and, and I loved having an extra Paralympic teammate um, on the team, and, and we often trained together, and, and we put in the work uh, just, with every, just along with everyone else. And, um, yeah, I was able to actually spend some more time with her out in Colorado Springs over the last year training for Tokyo. Um, so yeah, the last two years with Colleen have been, have been very special and, and, um, they were, and, and I think that being with her just, um, really gave me, um, like a, a ground or, or a path. Uh, to move in the right direction and uh, and uh, knowing that she was able to go through the entire Fairfield program, uh, I think it, it gives me a little bit more confidence in myself and being here as well. Uh, Coach Bruno, you mentioned that you like to focus on what uh, people can do, not what they can't do. Both Colleen Young and Matthew are A-level swim team nationally. Uh, Michael Phelps was on the A-team when he was swimming competitively. So can you talk about the mindset, the attitude that a swimmer needs to get to the A-team? Yeah, I mean, um, when Matthew got here, I mean, and Matthew, correct me if I'm wrong, I think we were we were on the developmental or C-team at that point. Um so Matt, Matt was really, really coming on and, um, you know, he, he kind of saw Colleen as, as being on that A team and, and a vision of where he wanted to be. Um, and, and he was always, always communicating, asking, you know, what can I do? What can I do different? What can I do better? Um, but you know, he really, really kind of latched on to Colleen and saw where she was on the A team and, um, you know, coming in, uh, at one level by, by the end of his freshman year, I mean, he was really knocking on the door of, of being at that A level. Um, and, and it really was just a lot, a lot of grit, a lot of hard work. Um, again, he just, um, he, he brings, he brings a, a great attitude to every workout and, and it's really, you know, if they say that's the secret to success, I mean, just his, his general attitude every day in workouts is, um, I think a big reason he's had the success he's had. Mm. You know, today we're talking about the Paralympics, and I wanted to bring up, you know, earlier this year, Toyota released an ad uh, featuring 23-time Paralympic medalist, swimmer, and double amputee Jessica Long, and it focused on her adoption story uh, from Siberia and then becoming a double amputee because of a medical condition. Colin Young tweeted when that ad came out, I believe at the Super Bowl, that this ad is one of the biggest things to happen for the Paralympic movement in the U.S. I just wanted to play a portion of it for our listeners. Mrs. Long? Yes? We've found a baby girl for your adoption, but there are some things you need to know. She's in Siberia, and she was born with a rare condition. Her legs will need to be amputated. 
I know this is difficult to hear. Her life, it won't be easy. I wanted to play that ad. Uh, I know many of us saw it also watching the Olympics and Paralympics. Uh, but uh, Matthew, can you respond to what Colleen Young had tweeted about just the fact that, uh, you know, the Paralympic movement is getting more attention and, and, and how you felt when you saw that ad? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I saw that ad get aired for the first time during the Super Bowl as well, just as long as uh, with everyone else there, we, we had like a small little get together for, for Jessica. Um, and so we all watched that ad together and, and it was a very special moment. Um, because just like Colleen said that that was monumental for the Paralympic movement as a whole. Um, you know, the, the Paralympics have been getting a lot of momentum lately. Um, a lot of publicity and, and I think that's good because the, the people need to see um, that there's, there's more to sports than, you know, just, just the Olympics. I mean, the Paralympics follow right after, and, and that's its own showcase of, of a lot of years of dedication and, and hard work across several different athletes, several different nations, um, and with all sorts of disabilities. Um, and it's just we're out there showing the world that that um, we're we're at the same level right there with the Olympians. Well, Matthew Torres, it's been a pleasure to hear from you to learn a little bit about your story. I have to ask now that you have the bronze. I mean, where do you keep it in your house? Do you walk around with it sometimes? Do you wear it? <laughs> um, it's so it's with me here in Fairfield, out in my dorm room. I, I keep it in this. In the in the case they gave me for it, um, but yeah, from time to time, I like to take it out and admire it. Well, you have a lot uh, to be proud of. And what's next for you, Matthew? Um, n- next up for me, I'm I'm focusing on on the collegiate season and and uh, getting ready to go. Uh, hopefully, score some points in our dual meets and uh, and just be the best swimmer I can be for the Stags. Matthew Torres again. He's a para swimmer, a bronze medalist at this year's Paralympics in Tokyo, and a junior at Fairfield University. Matthew, thanks for your time. Thank you. Also, Anthony Bruno, head coach of the men's and women's swimming and diving program at Fairfield University. A pleasure to hear from you as well. Thank you so much for the time. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we hear from another athlete with Connecticut ties who competed in the Paralympics. You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. 
Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We're talking about the Tokyo Paralympics today, which wrapped up just last week. 129 athletes on Team USA brought medals home. Four of them had Connecticut ties. Paralympian Laura Goodkind competed in the 2016 and 2020 Games. She went to the Foreman School in Litchfield, and she lives now in California. She's joining us on Zoom. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. I mentioned you're a two-time Paralympian. Congratulations. What's that like on the world stage? I also had asked Matt the same question. Um, it's it's pretty incredible, especially uh, that this year we had a lot of coverage because of the pandemic. So I think a lot more people were exposed than previous years. And so in a, in a way, it was advantageous that we didn't have an audience because it, it did allow for more media coverage and for more people to be reached worldwide to, to view us. So you're a para rower. So tell me about uh, your competition. So um, the categories or the, the race length? Uh, your categories. Okay, so we have a PR1, PR2, and PR3. I'm a PR2. So that's the middle impairment class. Uh, most rowers in that class have a bilateral leg impairment. And so when you were when you were just born, doctors told your family that you may not walk or talk. And I would like to talk a little bit with you about, um, you know, how you got into rowing and a little bit about, you know, the, the time and commitment that you put in to become a Paralympian, Lara. Right. So I had a lot of uh, medical complications from the get go. I was born three months early. And so when it was in my uh, mid-20s that I became aware of the, the Paralympic movement, and then I would say in my late 20s is when I was seeing a dietitian um, for a swallowing disorder that I had, and um, I, I had become really sick in 2014. I had sepsis and septic shock, um, and so I, I nearly died in 2014, and I was living abroad then, and when I came back to the U.S., seeing this dietitian, she she thought it would be um, a really good idea for me to be with other people who um, also experience um, a physical challenge. And so I thought, okay, there are sports and there are support groups, and that's all that I was aware of at the time for what was available um, for people with a physical difference. And I chose sports, but she was very hesitant. She thought that it was not a good idea. My vitals were not stable, but um, I found rowing through a Paralympic sport club search. And it was realized very early on that the 
me being involved in sports was actually improving my health. And so the more active I was becoming, the more stable my vitals were becoming. And um, that was my initial introduction into the world in my late 20s. So you have cerebral palsy and you mentioned you got, um, you know, encouraged and uh, introduced to para rowing. So tell us uh, what it was like to start in your 20s. Um, fortunately, I, I was very active for as soon as I could walk. Uh, I was in pretty much every sport imaginable. And so though I hadn't done rowing, uh, I did still have the athletic confidence to pursue something at a high level. When I was at the Foreman School, uh, I was on three different sports teams uh, and I was competing like first singles in tennis from um, from my freshman year at a different school, but it continued at the Foreman School. And so the transition into rowing was was more a technical shift than it was an athletic shift because that, that mindset was already there from the get-go. I mentioned you're a two-time Paralympian. So can you contrast your time in 2016 to your time uh, this year, Laura? Sure. Uh, the the primary difference, which was uh, incredible, was that in 2016, uh, with the Russian doping scandal, I found out 10 days before uh, heading to processing that we were offered the spot for the Russians that we had lost the spot to uh, in, an, in a previous competition that year. And so that was a whirlwind. That was just, hey, would you like to go to Rio? Okay, 10 days, you're going. Um, so that there was, there was not a ton of mental preparation for that. This time was a lot different. We earned our spot at the World Championships. Uh, we earned the boat spot in 2019 at the World Championships. And so the boat acts as a placeholder, and then you have to earn your spot at U.S. trials um, the following year. That was postponed because of the pandemic, but um, in trials this year in April, we earned the spot. And um, so there was a lot more mental uh, and physical preparation that went into these games. When we think about uh, being an athlete at your level, I mean, there's a lot, like you mentioned, having like a certain mental and physical, uh, you know, ability uh, to to keep competing and to practice and be consistent. But there were times in your life uh, that this helped you. Uh, I understand that you were homeless at one point. Uh, can you talk about that and and you know how being involved in sports has helped you? Sure. So it was actually after I returned from my very first developmental camp um, in Boston that I basically, when the plane landed in L.A., um, I had someone call me saying that the, the housing I was living at was no longer going to be available. And it was virtually overnight uh, that I became homeless. And I experienced homelessness for uh, nearly two years in Santa Monica. Um, I was at a decent shelter, but uh, truth be told, most people would alter their realities using drugs or alcohol. And that, you know, was an option for me, but I decided I would rather manage my reality. Um, and that's where sports were integral. And so people might be out doing what they were doing at night. And I would be late for curfew because like the train broke down and I didn't, I didn't make it in time. And so it was, it was a, it was a frustrating challenge to be like, I'm engaging in healthy activities. 
Uh, I don't understand why there's repercussions, negative repercussions for that. Um, but definitely sports and the community that I found in, in the adaptive sports community, those people were phenomenal and um, kind of just gave me that outlet that I certainly needed during, during those years. And I was, I was still homeless when I was competing in Rio. So um, it was definitely a world shift to be living in a shelter than to be in a Paralympic Olympic village um, with elite athletes that, that was def definitely a major transition going to and leaving from the village that year. Um, fortunately, I secured housing in early uh, in May 2017 and uh, been housed since then. And you're doing all right now, Laura? Yes, uh, a really great organization, Brilliant Corners. They, they've uh, been subsidizing, um, like affording me a grant so that way I can remain housed um, in spite of any medical limitations that I might have because that was the primary reason that I became homeless uh, to begin with because I had so many medical complications that I couldn't hold down a, a full-time job. Um, and so this organization definitely helps um, remove that stressor from my life. Uh, what do you want people to know about what it means to be a Paralympian, to compete at this level of the Paralympics? Do you think there's more awareness of the games now? I think there's definitely more thanks to, uh, in large part, the media and all the promotions that were leading up to Tokyo, um, especially compared to Rio. Uh, I think it's incredible um, that one thing I definitely didn't know as a little kid, I, I wasn't aware that there was such a thing as um, an adaptive sport community or that even that I would qualify with my disability. Um, I do have cerebral palsy, but I was always brought up like as though I were able-bodied. And I, I would like a lot of people out there to know that like almost any physical disability that's permanent um, that limits you in some way makes you, could make you eligible for a sport in the Paralympics. It might not be you know, the one that you're competing in right now, but there will be a sport out there for almost everyone who, who wants to find one. And so get involved as young as possible um, and don't let like labels limit you. Um, we all have labels and we all have situations, but, but we can definitely rise above those. Um, we don't have to be defined by them. It's been a pleasure to hear from you, Laura. What's next for you after Tokyo? Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to still be staying very active. Um, and it might be rowing. It might be another sport. But I'm definitely looking forward to uh, competing in Paris, hopefully, in three years. That's Laura Goodkind. Again, she's a two-time Paralympian. And she has Connecticut roots. She went to the Foreman School in Litchfield. Laura, thanks again. Thank you. I wanted to transition to Maggie Venoni, who's with us here on Zoom. She's a sports reporter for Hearst, Connecticut. Maggie, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me, Laura. I'm happy to be here. Or Lucy, I'm happy to be here. It was interesting to hear uh, Laura's story. And I wonder if you can get, tell us more about uh, the para-athletes who competed with ties to Connecticut. Yeah, there were six athletes who competed in Tokyo um, in the Paralympics with ties to Connecticut, a couple of them being 
local and born here in the state and others having connections through colleges or high school. Can you tell us more about them and how diverse were they in terms of their sport and their disabilities? Yeah, we had two swimmers uh, with Matthew and Colleen, both um, University of Fairfield swimmers, both of which medaled as well. And then we also had Karen Petrick from Glastonbury who medaled in the PR3 mixed for Cox, Cox and Rowing event. Uh, Team USA won silver in that event for the seventh straight year. Uh, we also had Lovar Goodkind, who we just heard from, and Amy Dixon in the para triathlon, and Brianna Salonero um, in the para um, taekwondo event. Mm. I understand the Paralympics saw many firsts this year in terms of equity. Um, can you talk about that? Yeah, this Paralympics was one of the most inclusive Paralympics, if not the that we've had so far. Um, besides just an increase in viewership, an increase in um, hours broadcast. The NB- NBC broadcasted over a thousand and two thousand two hundred hours, uh, compared to just seventy hours during the Rio Games in twenty sixteen. Um, additionally, we saw a lot of e- equity in um, prize reward and money reward with medals. Paralympians who medaled won this, the exact same amount that Olympians who medaled um, in, in their counterparts. Uh, for example, if a Paralympian won a gold medal, their Originally, um, in 2016, they would just get 7500 for that medal. But now in 2020, they got $37,500, which is a 400% increase. Wow. And so uh, what were some of the catalysts for that? Yeah, I think a lot of that just had to do with trying to make it an even playing field because it is, you know, because these Paralympians work just as hard to earn their spot in these summer games as their Olympic counterparts. Um, and that decision to make the prize award equal was passed originally in 2018. Um, and this was the first Olympic Games to put that into action. You know, when we think about, uh, we, I asked both uh, athletes that I spoke with about just awareness of the Paralympics, and they, they do believe that it's growing. Would you say that's the case, Maggie? Yeah, absolutely. I think that just comes with, you know, companies like Toyota highlighting these, these athlete stories along with having more access to watching the games with NBC showing more hours. Um, it introduces people to these athletes, to these types of sports. Um, and I think that's the most important part. So what will happen to the Paralympics? You know, we, we've heard uh, through the years just the outcry generally against the costs of the Olympics. And, you know, again, it's the same uh, the site and location uh, for the Paralympics. Uh, the Tokyo Olympics official price tag was $15 billion. Uh, that's more than the GDP of small countries. And so has there been conversation about that at all? Um, I think we're still going to see them going on as planned. I know each, each, each Olympic Games, including the Paralympics, usually go over price budget as well. Um, I know Beijing coming up in the, for the Winter Games in February for the Winter Paralympic and Olympic Games. Um, I know that's probably going to, that we might see that also go over budget, just dealing with more COVID postponements, um, how to make sure all the health and safety guidelines are, are being met, but most likely will increase the budget as well. Before I let you go, uh, Maggie, I did want to ask about the Fairfield University Integrated Swim Program. Again, you got two Paralympians coming out of Fairfield, Colleen Young and Matthew Torres. Uh, is the program fairly unique? Yeah, I would say so. I would also say, you know, that we're seeing more Division One programs across the country just incorporating different levels of swimmers, different swimmers, and saying, hey, we want to help you reach your goals, whether those are para goals, whether those are collegiate goals. We want to do what we can to 
help you succeed. Um, I think that's just really inspiring to see these historical programs reaching out and saying, come swim for us and let's help you elevate your peer goals. You're hearing Maggie Vanoni here on Where We Live. She's a sports reporter with Hearst, Connecticut. Maggie, thanks for your time. Thank you. Coming up right after the break, we wanted to learn more about sports training programs for children and adults with intellectual disabilities. Coming up, we'll hear from Special Olympics, Connecticut. You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up tomorrow, 4th District Congressman Jim Himes joins us to talk about Afghanistan and his new chairman post of a U.S. House subcommittee. We'll also get a recap of Connecticut's local primaries. If you have a question for Congressman Himes, we hope you join us. That's tomorrow. Now, earlier we were talking to Paralympians with ties to Connecticut after the Games wrapped up in Tokyo. We wanted to learn more about the sports training opportunities for children and adults with intellectual disabilities in our state. Joining us now on Zoom is Bo Doherty, president of Special Olympics Connecticut. Bo, welcome to the show. Great to be on, Lucy. Now, we were just talking about the integrated swim team at Fairfield University, and I understand through Special Olympics Connecticut that school teams are also unified. Can you talk about that? Yeah, 1992, um, Special Olympics Connecticut, we got together with uh, CIAC, and we developed uh, what we call unified sports in the school systems. Um, unified sports came out of Massachusetts. Um, it's essentially sports where people with them, kids with and without disabilities are all on the same team. And presently, 95% of all the high schools, 82 middle schools, and about 70 elementary schools are doing unified sports and have been doing it for a long time in about six different sports during the course of the school year. That's an impressive percentages. Talk about the value of this program. The end game, I, I would say that, and most people would agree in the research shows, we're trying to move the needle for non-disabled people to accept um, people with differences. We, we all are aware of, you know, the old days where a lot of our, our athletes would sit in the corner at lunchtime, you know, never be asked to go to a party. Um, a lot of that has changed because a lot of these non-disabled kids have been practicing and then competing together with the athletes. And, you know, some misconceptions that may, they may have um, has been overturned by the fact that they, you know, they practice as a team. And then when they go to the state competitions, or the local tournaments, they're going against other unified teams, so they bond together. You mentioned uh, misconceptions. I'm also thinking about um, just uh, in, the, in the school climate uh, when children may uh, be different from others, uh, and they can get bullied. And how do you see unified sports uh, helping uh, squash that? It it helps a lot. We we don't. Sometimes I'll hear um, specific things that have happened. But a lot of the partners on our teams, uh, let's just say, discourage that. 
from happening within the school systems. That's been shown by research. You know, at our level four unified program, if you can envision this, you'd have modified height of baskets and basketball. And it's the captain of the football team that's that's helping that person with a physical disability and an intellectual disability get from one end of the court to the other and the captain of the field hockey team. And when you have those sorts of people within the high school framework who are doing things with our athletes, uh, it does change the game. People don't want to do bad things to our athletes. You're hearing Bo Doherty here on Where We Live. He's president of Special Olympics Connecticut, talking about the training opportunities uh, for children and adults with intellectual disabilities in our state. You know, I remember Special Olympics back when I was in high school and volunteered. I imagine it has changed a lot through the years. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's 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 changed a ton, honestly, Lucy. You know, now, you know, there's a there's a a lot of effort put into the health and fitness side of the house. If you came to our summer games, there would be screenings for uh, everything from feet to ears. I mean, if somebody's got uh, problems after a test with their eyesight, we grind the glasses right then and there. We have um, dentists and hygienists doing the screening. And then we have the ability to send people to different doctors um, and hospitals across the state if they've got some real problems there. So health has really changed. The inclusive nature of the whole organization has changed. What we started in 92 here is now in at least 90% of all the U.S. programs and the Department of Education is supporting efforts in in unified sports in schools uh, across the United States. And most recently in this particular year, there's a huge push put on the urban areas of Connecticut. One of our one school in Connecticut system that we had just not done a very good job with is Hartford. And we have uh, two high schools coming on uh, with us this year. And But every other urban area of Connecticut is covered. Mm. You mentioned uh, the origin of the Unified program uh, starting back uh, in the 90s. But I understand that Eunice Kennedy Shriver helped you launch this, right? Can you talk about that? Sure. Um, so I went to Eunice uh, Kennedy Shriver in 1984 and, and told her that I felt very strongly that if we didn't change philosophically as an organization and start to um, put uh, our athletes on teams with non-disabled individuals, that we would become outdated in the next 10 years. And luckily for me, um, that did resonate. You know, Mrs. Shriver, uh, did sailing with her sister, Rosemary, who was intellectually disabled, and they were a really great team, um, you know, racing down in Hyannisport. And she was a very strong leader. And when she finally did a little bit of research, we did a bunch of tournaments with about five different states. Um, She got up there in front of everybody and said, this program is something that I really believe in, and I want you all to start uh, going down this road. And I'll tell you, Lucy, there were a lot of programs around the world and a lot of states who did not want to go down that road, but they're all doing it now. Tell me about that, the pushback, that, at least in the beginning. I think, I think the pushback was that people could not grasp. Uh, they were afraid, afraid that non-disabled people would take the limelight on the teams. I also, I also think that um, some people just could not fathom 
why you would just not put all your efforts into only putting people with disabilities or differences on the same team. They, they could not understand the end game, which is really the friendship and acceptance and relationship building that sometimes sports has. Um, you know, we often talk, you know, it's unbelievable what Matthew and Laura have done. Incredible. You know, some of our athletes are severely challenged. And so, you know, the gold medal at the highest levels may not come about, but having some friends uh, in your life is pretty important. If you're listening now and you have a connection to Special Olympics Connecticut, we'd love to hear from you, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, you know, we were talking about some of the pushback in the beginning with the unified um, program, uh, and I'm wondering when we think about the challenges that remain, Bo, uh, for you and your team, uh, you know, trying to run these programs, especially in a pandemic. Yeah, you know, uh, you know, we've come off virtual, but the, the great news is that we just had 900, over 900 athletes, um, starting with Blotchy down in Stanford, all the way to Ocean House, where we had croquet. And we did sailing, we did softball uh, and golf. Uh, we were able to do those sports uh, after coming through a winter where we were doing pretty much everything virtually. So, Every state is in a different situation in Special Olympics right now. So Texas is not, can't do any practices. They can't do any competitions. Connecticut is in a different boat. Maine's starting to close down a little bit. Rhode Island was uh, having some difficulties. So all of us are really, our athletes are very isolated. They're in a residential program with their parents. And, you know, for them, our program has been a social program. So, you know, we're all really trying to open things up and get sports happening where we can do it in person. You know, Coach Bruno uh, hosted us uh, recently in the summer where we had all our swimmers. Luckily, we were able to go to Fairfield University. So uh, we're hoping that that translates into some things in the uh, holiday season where we can do bowling, powerlifting, um, unified volleyball, and unified basketball. Mm -hmm. Uh, for people listening now who might be interested in getting uh, someone in their family involved, you know, what's a, what's a good way to start? Best way to start is really to go to our website, uh, www.socd.org. That is the best way to start because once we get the email or once we get the phone call, we can then work with a parent or an athlete to get them connected to one of the 72 local training programs that we have, or if they're young, get them connected to our school program with CIAC. That's wonderful to hear. And earlier you had mentioned, uh, you know, trying to get some programs in uh, urban areas has been a challenge, but you're starting one up in Hartford. Also relying on, a lot on volunteers, Bo? Yeah, I, you know, that, that's been our lifeblood. I mean, that is the thing that has made Special Olympics a little bit different. We've been able to um, get a lot of corporations to come out, um, employee activation. They see the end result of where their money goes. And, um, and so that has been a big thing. So volunteering is incredibly important. We, we were, as an example, with Ocean House and Croquet, we had everybody all set, except we didn't have drivers for shuttles. And it, uh, the Navy saved us at the last second. So 
having all different types of volunteers with different skills, uh, we need them in our organization. And without them, we'd be in tough shape. Mm. So they can go to that same website to learn more uh, to, to volunteer, Bo. Absolutely, yes. Can you say it again Most for people. us? <laughs> yeah, sure. It's uh, www.socct.org. And we'll be sure to share that on our, our social media. Well, it was a pleasure to talk with you, Bo. We know Special Olympics uh, does such amazing work. Uh, and when you think about the unified sports model that started here and now replicated nationally, that's a lot to be proud of. Thank you, Lucy. And I've been listening to you for a long time. So it's really a big thing for me to be on your show. Thank you. Well, wonderful. Thank you, Bo. Today's show produced by Sujata Srinivasan. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. You can listen to Where We Live anytime. Just download us on your favorite podcast app. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Back tomorrow.